Hi, podcasters. I'd like to take a moment to let you know that we'll be taking a break next week for the Thanksgiving holiday. But don't worry, we do have a very special treat lined up, so stay tuned for that. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say thank you. Your loyalty and support is what makes this show possible, and this year more than ever, it has meant so much to us. From all of us here at Parcast, we wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was a merciless winter's morning in Moscow, the kind of bitter cold that sets deep in your bones. Dawn was breaking over the snow-covered forests of Bitsa Park, a stretch of urban wilderness in the city's southwest. Much of Moscow was still asleep and the park was quiet. There was little movement save for the rustling of the trees in the wind. But just below the frozen ground, a young woman was fighting for her life. Maria Viracheva was 19 years old. She was three months pregnant and was trapped in a well, desperate to make it back to the surface. But her way was blocked by a heavy iron manhole cover. Maria pushed at the cover with every ounce of strength she had left, but the cover weighed 90 pounds and she couldn't move it more than a few inches. She tried to call for help, but her voice was hoarse and faint, lost to the wind. Despairing, she didn't know what else to do, and her time was running out. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're delving into the horrific saga of the chessboard killer. Alexander Pachushkin. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we'll look at Pachushkin's upbringing in Moscow, the physical and psychological trauma that shaped his personality, and how the competitive streak behind his chess obsession also drove him to kill. In part two, we'll follow Pachushkin's escalating murder spree in the early 2000s, his capture, and the confession that stunned law enforcement. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light. And it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Alexander Pichushkin's first loss came before his first birthday. Born on April 9, 1974, Pichushkin was still a baby when his father walked out on the family. He grew up with no memories of his father at all. Pichushkin's mother, Natasha, was left to raise her infant son alone. Still, at least she was in familiar surroundings. She lived in the same two-bedroom apartment since she was 11 years old on Kursinskaya Street in Moscow. The apartment was basic, chilly, and charmless. Part of one of the Soviet Union's first public housing projects. But it had one thing going for it. It was only a six-minute walk from Bitsevsky Park. Known by locals by its shortened name, Bitsa, the park is a sprawling stretch of forest that covers around seven square miles. Filled with silver birch trees and glittering streams, the park offers residents a reprieve from Moscow's concrete jungle. Bitsa Park was a huge part of Pichushkin's childhood. Growing up, his mother and grandfather often took him there for walks or to play in the playground. And it was in the park that a freak accident changed Pichushkin forever. One afternoon when Pichushkin was four, his mother took him to play on the swings. While her back was turned, Pichushkin fell backward off the swing, landing hard on the ground. As he sat up, dazed, the swing swung back around and hit him in the forehead. He was never the same after that day. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Pichushkin's mother, her son's personality darkened after the accident. He became angry and volatile, prone to wild mood swings and sudden outbursts. It's possible that the head trauma Pichushkin suffered caused lasting damage to an area of his brain called the frontal lobe, which was still developing at the age of four. The frontal lobe controls impulse regulation and personality expression. Research has shown that frontal lobe trauma can cause problems with emotions and anger and interfere with the production of dopamine, which is known as the feel-good neurotransmitter. Research also indicates that there may be an association between head injury and homicidal behavior. According to a 2014 study by Scottish and Swedish researchers, one in four serial killers suffered either a head injury or an illness affecting the brain during their formative years. In any case, the accident in 1978 had a profound impact on Pachishkin's childhood. Details about his early life are sketchy, and we don't know the exact dates for many key events. 
But here's the timeline as we understand it. After the accident, Natasha worried that Pachushkin's cognitive problems were affecting his studies. So she took him out of his regular school and transferred him to an institution for children with learning disabilities. This transfer may have come as a relief. Pichushkin was a shy child, and even before the accident, he struggled to fit in at school. His classmates physically and verbally bullied him, which only made him more withdrawn and angry. But not everybody knew Pichushkin as a volatile kid. His neighbor, Svetlana Mortyakova, remembers him as a sensitive and polite boy who was devoted to animals. On one occasion, she found the young Pachushkin sobbing in a stairwell in their apartment building. The boy's pet cat died that day, and he was inconsolable. According to Svetlana, he was speechless with grief. This doesn't line up at all with the typical image of a burgeoning serial killer. Cruelty to animals is famously considered an early warning sign for homicidal behavior. But by all accounts, Pachushkin enjoyed the company of animals more than people. The exception to that rule was his grandfather, who he was close to. As Pachushkin neared adolescence, his grandfather recognized a natural intelligence in the boy and wanted to help him harness it. He also felt that Pachushkin needed a father figure to keep him in line. By this time, Natasha had another child. She gave birth to her daughter Katya in 1982, when Pachushkin was eight. Between her growing son and her infant daughter, Natasha's two-room apartment was getting very crowded. So when her father suggested that Pachushkin come and live with him, she agreed. Pachushkin, grateful for a change of scenery, packed up his scarce belongings to move to his grandfather's home. His grandfather encouraged him to develop intellectual interests outside of his studies. To that end, he introduced him to Russia's national pastime, chess. Chess has a long and proud history in Russia. Since soon after the revolution in 1917, the game had been funded by the state, promoted by politicians, and hailed as a way for Russia to dominate on the international stage. The Soviets saw chess as more than a game. It was an embodiment of their ideals, requiring skill, strategy, and discipline. For the teenage Pichushkin, chess was a breakthrough. After years of struggling at school, here at last was an opportunity to excel, to be admired and celebrated. He was a natural, and his grandfather soon declared that he was ready to show off his skills in public. The ideal place for the teen to make his debut was Bitsa Park. The park was vast and versatile popular with cross-country skiers in the winter, lovebirds in the summer, and joggers all year round. But for chess players, it was an arena. Pachushkin began playing public chess games in the park, opposite much older men who had been playing their entire lives. He was an outstanding player, and in the game he found a competitive outlet for the rage and alienation simmering inside him. Pachushkin also found a sense of belonging among the chess players, he felt more kinship with these vodka-drinking strategic masterminds than he ever did with his fellow students at school. But his happiness was short-lived. When Pachushkin was still a teenager, his grandfather died. Having lost his own father before he was old enough to form memories, the loss of this father figure hit him hard. Pachushkin fell into a deep depression. He moved back in with his mother and half-sister, and the three of them crammed into the same old apartment where the living room doubled as a second bedroom. The claustrophobic living situation likely added to Pachishkin's spiraling mental state. 
Perhaps seeking an outlet, he adopted a dog, taking refuge in his love of animals. He spent hours in Bitsa Park taking long walks with his dog among the birch trees and drinking to dull the pain of his loss. And when he felt up to it, he went back to playing chess. But now, without his grandfather's stabilizing influence, the mood of the matches was darker. Even when Pichushkin won, he didn't seem happy, and the huge quantities of vodka he drank probably didn't help. Pichushkin thrived on the feeling of control chess gave him. Seeing the look in his opponent's eyes as he realized he had lost was intoxicating. But these fleeting moments no longer satisfied his craving for dominance. Likewise, chess no longer occupied his mind the way it used to. No matter how many games he won, Pichushkin couldn't escape the hopelessness of his real life. He left school with few qualifications and took a job stacking shelves at a local supermarket. He longed for a way to stand out, to be exceptional in the eyes of the world. In 1992, he found an unlikely role model. That year, as Pachushkin turned 18, headlines across Russia were dominated by the trial of the Soviet serial killer, Andrei Chikatilo. Accused of 52 murders, Chikatilo was the most prolific killer in Russia's history, earning him the nickname, The Butcher of Rostov. Most Russians watched in horror as Chikatilo's gruesome crimes were recounted by the media. But for some macabre reason, Pachushkin was inspired. Watching Chikatilo's ascent, the way an ordinary man could rise from humble beginnings to become the talk of the nation, sparked something in the deeply competitive Pachushkin. He didn't just want to be like the extraordinary killer. He wanted to outdo him. He fantasized about beating the butcher of Rostov at his own game. Not chess, of course but murder, and so began a one-sided competition that would consume Pachushkin for years to come. Coming up, Pachushkin goes on his first killing expedition. Listeners, here's a show you do not want to miss. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, and some don't. In our love story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, our love story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse into a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Ready to hear more? Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. 
That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1992, 18-year-old Alexander Pachushkin made a fateful decision. Russia was watching with bated breath as the trial of vicious serial killer Andrei Chikatilo unfolded. But instead of being horrified by Chikatilo's crimes, which included murder, rape, and mutilation, Pachushkin was envious. Fiercely competitive by nature, Pachushkin wanted to outdo Chikatilo. He wanted to become a killer even more legendary than the Rostov Butcher. But he didn't want to do it alone. Pachushkin was a misfit at school, and his early experiences of bullying made him something of a loner. But his late grandfather helped him gain social confidence by teaching him to play chess and taking him to play public games in Moscow's Bitsa Park. Being a part of the chess-playing community helped Pachushkin see that he wasn't so unusual after all. And though he didn't have much in common with most of the other teens at school, there was one boy who he thought might understand his impulses. On the afternoon of July 27, 1992, Pachushkin invited his former classmate, Mikhail Odichuk, to accompany him to Bitsa Park. When Odichuk asked what he wanted to do there, Pachushkin nonchalantly told him it was a killing expedition. He wanted to murder someone that day, and he wanted Odichuk to be his accomplice. When Odichuk agreed to accompany him to the park, Pachushkin was thrilled. Finally, he had found a kindred spirit, somebody who understood his new, dark impulses. But when they reached Bitsa, Pichushkin noticed a change in Odichuk. Pichushkin tried to engage him in conversation as they walked, sharing observations about people they passed and wondering aloud who would make the perfect victim. Pichushkin suggested that their best bet was someone who was alone, perhaps homeless, someone who wouldn't be missed. Odichuk didn't respond. He seemed uneasy and kept trying to change the subject. Pichushkin realized with a prickle of anger that Odichuk had never taken this killing expedition seriously. He was only here as a joke. Pichushkin thought Odichuk was making fun of him. And after so many years of mockery at the hands of his classmates, Pichushkin couldn't tolerate that from a friend. As dusk settled over the park, the young men wandered deep into the forest. It seemed as if there was nobody around for miles. Realizing this, Pichushkin seized his moment. When Odichuk's back was turned, Pichushkin hit him hard in the head with a hammer. As Odichuk crumpled to the ground, Pichushkin kept hitting him. He struck more than 20 times, fracturing his friend's skull and killing him within minutes. After Odichuk stopped breathing, Pachushkin left his body where it lay and headed back towards his apartment on the north side of the park. He'd walked this path countless times, often after winning a chess game, and none of those victorious highs compared to this feeling. But like most thrills, it faded quickly. The next day, Odichuk's body was discovered in the forest, and police arrived at Pachushkin's door. 
In seconds, his euphoria gave way to panic. There's very little reporting from this time, so we don't know exactly what led the police to Petishkin. It's likely that witnesses saw the two men walking to the park together that afternoon. But Petushkin insisted he had nothing to do with Odachuk's death, and investigators had no evidence against him. Apparently, the 18-year-old was a convincing liar, so they let him go. There are conflicting accounts of what Petushkin did after this. Many reports state that he didn't kill again for nine years until the year 2001. But according to another report, he killed someone else in the year 1992. Here's how that story goes. Petushkin was in love with his neighbor Olga, a girl around his own age. But she didn't feel the same way. And when she rejected him, Petushkin was furious. He murdered Olga's boyfriend, Sergei, by pushing him out of a window. Because he died by falling from a building, the police dismissed Sergei's death as suicide. It suggested that Petushkin murdered Olga too, but this doesn't seem to have been proven. Either way, Petushkin took a long hiatus from killing after that. We have no way of knowing exactly why he stopped for so long. Perhaps being questioned by the police spooked him, or it's possible that the fate of his idol, Andre Chikatilo, gave him pause. In October of 1992, Chikatilo was sentenced to death. Two years later, he was executed by gunshot, which might have put a dampener on Petushkin's desire to emulate him. Whatever his reasons, the pause is striking, but it's not as unusual as you might think for a serial killer to stop killing. In a 2008 study on serial murder, the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime found that murderers will sometimes stop when they find a different outlet for their emotions, or when sources of stress in their lives disappear. According to the report, certain events or circumstances in a murderer's life can make him less likely to pursue more victims. These can include increased participation in family activities, sexual substitution, and other diversions. But there's no indication that Petushkin's life improved for the better during this time. As his teenage years drew to a close, he settled into a mundane and lonely existence. He went to work at the supermarket and then came home to the two-room apartment he shared with his mother and half-sister. There's no record of girlfriends or any significant relationship outside of his family. For nine years, Petushkin's life continued in this unremarkable vein. Nobody gave him much thought, and certainly nobody had any idea of the darkness that was brewing within his troubled mind. His ordinary life proved to be the perfect smokescreen. Petushkin spent the decade plotting, devising a way to meld his two greatest obsessions, chess and murder. The image of the chessboard was never far from his mind. He saw it when he was walking alone in the park, when he woke up in the morning, and in the moments just before he fell asleep at night. He imagined each of the board's squares as a death. If he could fill up the entire board, one victim per square, he would have killed 64 people, a total far greater than Chikatilo's 52. Over the years, the plan crystallized in his mind. He had killed once and gotten away with it. He knew he could do it again and better if he went in with a strategy. On May 17, 2001, almost nine years after he killed Odachuk, 
Pachushkin was finally ready to put his plan into action. Now 27, he had spent his entire adult life preparing for this moment. The image of the chessboard loomed in his mind as he walked across Bitsa Park that night, heading for a familiar spot. As always, the chess exhibition area was populated by old men, moving pawns and knights around in between swigs of vodka. Pichushkin was still a regular at the chess tables, and he knew many of these men well. He approached a fellow regular, Yevgeny Pronyan, and invited him to take a walk through the park. He told Yevgeny that today was a sad day. It was the anniversary of his beloved dog's death. The dog was buried in Bitsa Park, Pichushkin explained, and he wanted to visit the grave and raise a toast. After Pichushkin promised to split his bottle of vodka, Yevgeny agreed to go with him. Pichushkin led him through the park to a secluded clearing where he said his dog was buried. Producing the vodka from his pocket, Pichushkin poured Yevgeny a drink. The two talked for a while. Pichushkin was in no rush. He found it interesting to spend time talking to a man who was destined to die. But finally, the moment came. When Yevgeny wasn't looking, Pichushkin struck. He smashed the vodka bottle hard into the back of the man's head, knocking him unconscious. A familiar, intoxicating feeling of power flooded through him. But Pichushkin learned from his previous mistake. He wasn't about to leave this body out in the open for the police to find. He had a plan. A network of sewers serving most of Western Moscow runs beneath Bitsa Park, accessible by wells at ground level. Pichushkin dragged Yevgeny's unconscious form to a nearby well and dropped him in, leaving him to fall 30 feet into the sewer. Pichushkin knew that if the head trauma and the fall didn't kill him, Yevgeny would surely drown in the fast-flowing and filthy water. Just like that, it was over. Pichushkin's plan was a success. Nothing remained to suggest a murder even took place. When he arrived home that night, he greeted his mother and sister as usual, then went straight to his bedroom and took out his prized possession, his chessboard. There are different accounts of exactly how Pachushkin kept track of his kills. Some reports say he drew crosses on his chessboard. Others say he placed coins onto the squares for each murder. And yet another account suggests that he kept a drawing of a chessboard in a notebook, then wrote the date of each kill onto a different square. Though the details about his chilling scorecard are fuzzy, it's clear that killing Yevgeny cracked something open for Pichushkin. Now that he knew how smoothly his plan could work, he was unstoppable. Over the next eight weeks, he killed nine more men, using the same M.O. each time. He picked his target and invited them to take a walk to his dog's grave with him, luring them with the promise of free vodka, when they reached his favorite secluded spot, Pichushkin hit his victim over the head, dragged them to the well, and threw their unconscious body into the sewer to drown. It's difficult to find reliable details of the names and ages of Pichushkin's victims from this era. There are a couple of reasons for this. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, there were some growing pains as the state adjusted to a new structure. As a result, record-keeping deteriorated significantly. Also, Pichushkin made a point of targeting victims whose place in society was already fragile. 
Men without permanent homes or close family whose absence might go unnoticed for days or even weeks. That also means that they were less likely to show up in official records, and when they did, the police were less motivated to investigate. Just as Pachushkin hoped, the wells proved to be a perfect place to dispose of a body. The sewer system was so large and unwieldy that even if the bodies washed up and could be identified, nobody could possibly trace them back to Bitsa Park or to him. After a couple of months of completely undetected murders, Pachushkin concluded his summer spree on July 21st, 2001. That day, he murdered a man named Viktor Volkov. It was his 10th kill in two months, and his chessboard was filling up fast. But he was careful. He kept the board hidden away in a safe place where nobody could find it. Nobody in his life noticed anything amiss. Pachushkin had always been quiet and withdrawn, and his mood didn't change when he started murdering people. Despite the frequency of his kills that summer, he never seemed to lose control. His violence was as careful and methodical as his chess game. He even timed his murders to fall in the afternoon so he wouldn't miss his favorite TV show. He tried to be home by 8.30 every night to watch the French soap opera, The Duchess de Montsoreau. Pichushkin eased his pace a little in the fall and winter of 2001 and 2002, though he still murdered five people during this period. It's unclear exactly why he slowed down. Maybe people were more reluctant to take long walks with him in the park once the weather turned cold. Moscow's winters are brutal. Temperatures fall to below 20 degrees Fahrenheit, and snow is thick on the ground for months. But Pichushkin didn't ease up for long. Before the end of winter in 2002, he was back on the hunt, and his old M.O. was getting stale. Craving a challenge, he set his sights further afield than the park. That February, he prowled the streets of Moscow, unnoticed in the crowds of commuters, eyes peeled for the perfect victim. He found her sooner than he imagined. Coming up, Pachushkin's first female victim puts up a fight. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. By the winter of 2002, 28-year-old Alexander Pichushkin was flying under the radar as one of the deadliest serial killers in Russia's history. Nine years after his first murder in 1992, Pichushkin embarked on a frenzied killing spree in the summer of 2001. By the start of 2002, he had murdered at least 11 people, luring them into the sprawling forests of Bitsa Park with the promise of free vodka. He knocked his victims unconscious, then dumped them into the sewer system to drown. With every kill, he felt more powerful and more unstoppable. Pichushkin was well on his way to his ultimate goal, to kill enough people to fill every one of the 64 squares on a chessboard. But he was getting bored of the same old routine and the same old victim. 
For the past nine months, he'd targeted older men who'd spent their days hanging around Bitsa Park, playing chess and drinking vodka. Both in killing and in life, Pachishkin's lack of interest in women or any romantic partner is striking. There's no indication that he ever had a girlfriend or even showed an interest, except for the unconfirmed story about him killing a romantic rival in 1992. Then again, Pachushkin made a point of picking victims who wouldn't be missed. It's possible he avoided women for this reason. They were less likely to live alone. But on February 23, 2002, he took the risk. That afternoon, Pachushkin crossed paths with Maria Viracheva, a 19-year-old woman who was three months pregnant. Maria's boyfriend, Sergei, was an acquaintance of Pachushkin. So he recognized Maria immediately when he saw her outside the Kokoskaya metro station. Maria was distraught. She'd just had a huge argument with Sergei, and she was afraid he was going to leave her. Pachushkin approached her and offered her some company. For Pachushkin, the coincidence was almost too good to be true. He always liked to get to know his victims at least a little before killing them. The closer he was to a person, the better he knew them, the more he enjoyed the kill. Statistically, this makes Pichushkin an outlier. In a 2009 study conducted by Penn State University, researchers examined gender differences in serial killer behavior. They found that male serial killers were almost six times more likely to kill a stranger than female serial killers, who were more likely to kill a person they already knew. Male serial killers were also more likely to hunt their victims before the kill, the study found, and tended to pick strangers. Pichushkin was definitely a hunter, but he often targeted people he knew, usually men he had met playing chess at the park. Though these don't seem like particularly close relationships, Pichushkin got more of a thrill out of killing acquaintances than strangers. And he knew Maria well enough to know that he would enjoy killing her. But targeting Maria forced Pachishkin to change his M.O. Trying to lure a pregnant woman to the park with alcohol wasn't going to work. Instead, he told her he had several boxes of brand new camera equipment hidden in a safe place inside Bitsa Park. He made her an offer. If she helped him move the heavy cameras, he would give her half of them to sell so that she could provide for herself and her baby. He told her, don't waste your time grieving. You'd be better off making some money. Maria agreed to go with him. She followed him to the park and let him lead her deep into the forest towards a concrete well, where Pachushkin said the cameras were hidden. By the time they reached the well, it was getting dark and Maria was antsy. She had to wake up early for work the next morning and hadn't planned on being out this late. Pichushkin slowly lifted the iron manhole cover off the well and told Maria to come closer. As she approached him, he grabbed her and pushed her headfirst towards the well. Adrenaline flooding through her, Maria tried desperately to grip onto the edge of the well. Enraged by her resistance, Pichushkin grabbed her by the hair and started slamming her head hard into the concrete wall. Disoriented and in pain, Maria had one clear thought. He will kill me like this. She had no choice but to let go and fall into the darkness. Maria landed in a sewage pipe around 25 feet below the mouth of the well. The water was deep and the current was powerful enough to sweep her away, so powerful that she was trapped underwater for a while. 
But Maria was a fighter. She wanted to live. After she caught her breath, she took off all of the heavy winter clothes that were weighing her down. Without her jacket and boots, she was able to swim more easily and managed to find her footing. She planted her hands and feet firmly at the sides of the pipe and made her way through the darkness. Her head throbbing with pain, her heart pounding, Maria eventually made it to another well. This one had a ladder attached to its side and she was able to climb all the way up. But once she reached the top, the 90-pound manhole cover was almost impossible for her to move. She pushed with all her strength, but only managed to dislodge the cover by a few inches. By this stage, Maria had been in the pipe all night. It was now dawn, and a few early risers were taking morning walks in Bitsa Park. One woman stopped, frozen in horror, as she saw the manhole cover moving. From underneath the cover, Maria could see only a sliver of the world, just enough to watch helplessly as the woman fled. It was over. After fighting so hard to survive, she knew she was going to die inches from freedom. But within minutes, the woman returned, bringing two security guards from a nearby garage. As they drew closer, they heard Maria's faint cries for help. The guards removed the manhole cover, lifted the exhausted, terrified woman out of the well, and called an ambulance. Against all the odds, Maria survived. At the hospital, she breathed a sigh of relief as the doctors confirmed that her unborn baby was also unharmed. But her ordeal wasn't over yet. Maria wasted no time telling the police what happened. But when an officer came to question her at the hospital, he didn't seem very interested in the extraordinary story she told him. This could have been an easy arrest. Maria knew exactly who her attacker was and could identify him by name. And Pichushkin was not a powerful man. The police had no vested interest in protecting him. And yet... What happened next is incomprehensible. Perhaps the officer was lazy, or maybe he had some other reason for not wanting to investigate. Whatever the case, his goal that day wasn't to find out the truth from Maria but to keep her quiet. So he blackmailed her. Maria grew up in a rural area where job prospects were scarce. She moved to the capital to build a better future for herself, but special paperwork was required to live in Moscow at the time. Perhaps suspecting what her answer would be, the officer asked Maria for her papers. Maria told him the truth. She didn't have the documentation. The officer shook his head. He told her that if she stayed quiet about being attacked, then the police would overlook her, quote, illegal habitation in Moscow. She was forced to sign a statement saying that she fell down the well herself by accident. If that officer made a different choice and the police had arrested Pichushkin that day, dozens of lives might have been saved. Instead, as Maria lay in her hospital bed, traumatized and defeated, Pichushkin was going about his normal business at work. There was a spring at his step that day as he stacked the supermarket shelves. As far as he was concerned, his latest murder had gone off without a hitch. He believed that Maria was dead, her body lost to the labyrinthine sewer system. That meant another square on his chessboard was filled. Pichushkin basked in the memory of Maria, the feeling of power he felt as she disappeared into the black void of the well. 
But he didn't dwell for long. Like any chess player worth his salt, Pichushkin was already planning his next move. And his twisted game was only just beginning. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with part two, where we'll explore Pichushkin's snowballing murder spree through the early 2000s. For more information on Alexander Pichushkin, amongst the many sources we used, we found Peter Savodnik's 2009 article on the chessboard killer, featured in GQ, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Emma Dibdin, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.